This podcast is the design of City Sites Urban Media, and our goal is to bring into focus the difference between culture and God's ideas found in His Word. To learn more, go to citysitesurbanmedia.com. Do you think we've made any headway? In the I think it's more important to make headway in our own house. By the time the system comes into play, the damage is done. They're not locking up seven-year-olds. I, I was in Chicago a couple of three, four weeks ago, and we saw these little kids on bikes with masks on the side of their head, like five or six of them. And the driver said, yeah, they're little yummies. I said, who? He said, little, little yummies. Look up. Google little yummy. Mm. Little yummy was an 11-year-old murderer. Wow. And he got murdered at 11 by a 14-year-old. Wow. Who's doing life now and a 16-year-old. That makes no sense. You, you blame the system? Where was his father? Yeah. It starts in the house. It starts in the home. And yeah, well, well, my father got locked up. Well, where was his father? This is the City Sites Podcast with Larry Kutzler. The last time I talked with Brian Walker, we talked about race in America. It is a discussion we're having everywhere today, and many of those conversations are making many of us aware of our blind spots. As in the past, my biggest fear is that we will identify some areas we need to change, such as our policing procedures, and we'll be more aware of how black Americans are treated in society. But the bottom line will be, will we change as people? I have used a term in my blogs recently that I think describes what God is doing with America and with each of us. He is turning us inside out and showing us what is on the inside. Any exterior can fool you show no signs of disease, and it is only when you get an x-ray or an MRI that the truth about you is really revealed. The truth is never on the outside, it is always on the inside. Laws are designed to control the outside of a person, how you behave around others. But the hatred, the murder, the theft, the lies, the adultery, and the racism is always found on the inside. Jesus said, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. We are seeing played out the kind of changes we need, but policies, laws, and speeches will never change what is needed in the hearts of people. Heart changes can only be done when we give God the right to change us. He is the one who can take away the hate and replace it with love. He is the one who can take our anger, injustice, and our privilege and turn it into love with a heart to serve others and not control others. Rebuilding must begin with us. In our relationship with God, it is the only hope for lasting change. Today, Brian Walker talks with me about this change. We will also talk about the senseless destruction of life in the womb. When a society does not respect life at its earliest stages, it won't respect life at any age. Thanks again for joining us. Brian Walker's back again this week, and we're talking about race in America, race in our neighborhoods. And Brian, I want to just focus this week basically on the rebuilding that has to happen in our 
communities. And, you know, we want to do that as a society. We want to do it as neighborhoods. But doesn't rebuilding begin with each and every person? Something has to be rebuilt in us to have the right kind of dialogue, the right kind of attitude, the right kind of ideas that come out. Otherwise, you know, it's just, again, like you said last week, you're just talking past people, not with people. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? I think it's a mistake when you say rebuilding because of what has happened. Immediately our minds go to businesses, streets, residences, whatever was burnt up, turned down, blown up. And those are important. But I think rebuilding is going to have to start with how we deal and think about each other. The buildings will get rebuilt. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I remember the riots, 68, I was very young. But I remember how long it took for those economic structures to come back to the inner city. I have a degree in urban planning, so I kind of look at these things kind of macro-like and kind of from an architect and big macroeconomic type. But I think that our city, there, there's fear and woundedness. And my wife had an experience. She, uh, because we live in a close-end suburb, uh, the city's a half a block away from me, Minneapolis. And she had to drive to the BP on Duluth Street off of Highway 100 because the gas stations in our area had been closed down, boarded up, pumped shut off. And she went there and she said, I got some stares from white folks that were extremely hateful and angry. It upset her. I mean, she was shaking when she went out of there and she had tears when she got home. I was like, what's wrong? She said, I've not seen that type of behavior since Boston back in the 80s where she was visiting law schools up in Boston. And she was told by the people giving the tour, don't go to this area. Stay away from this area. If you go to this area, we need to go with you. And those are parts of South Boston at that time. I have no idea what Boston is like now. She said it would be uh, literally unsafe to go there because of the color of your skin. And she felt that on Duluth Street at a BP station off of Highway 100. Now, I'm sure that prior to that, she would not have gotten those looks. There was a white young guy that was collecting trash, kind of like a Dr. Street guy uh, near Robbinsdale. I was doing sidewalk counseling that day, and somebody was talking to him, and he said a black guy drove up in a car and said he'd kill him. You know, a Dr. Street picking up garbage. You know, why did that happen? I'm sure prior to the last couple of weeks, that not, would not have happened. And so the spiritual root of that is satanic. And we talk about Antifa, we talk about alt-right. Remember that Satan is the father of deception. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who loves to foment discord and confusion and anger. And if we don't deal with that to bring our uh, rebuilding or restructuring and build and call that out for what it is and build up from there, you could have all the buildings back that you want. Because I know that with rebuilding comes change. And there's some folks that are already concerned about rebuilding. Is my neighborhood going to be gentrified? How long will I be here as a renter? All these kind of things that kind of get in the mix, but we miss the, the foundation. And that doesn't mean it has to take a whole generation. It could take a year. I mean, the civil rights movement, if you compress it in the, the span of time, was a relatively short period of time where you had fundamental change in this country. Did it change the way people think about each other or systems or how we viewed ourselves? Uh, not necessarily. 
But Dr. King always was talked about, yeah, it's good to have a law that would keep people from lynching me or whatever. I think that would be a good idea. And so you can't legislate morality, but you could legislate behavior. And I'll take that any day. You know, these issues, as you raise, are very deep-seated, but I do think there's hope, and I think the church has a, a place to provide that hope. Let me give you a little story, and then I want you to comment on it. The other day, I had an, a window engineer who had retired from Anderson Windows, and of course, Anderson Windows is a big, one, the largest window manufacturer in the country, and he said, you know, every time we developed a new window, we'd go through this process what was that process? Well, the process is how will this window fail? And so they looked at everything from moisture, water, you know, humidity, everything. And they would get to the end of that discussion or the end of that discovery. And they would change whatever was needed because of what they saw in their failure tests. So Brian, as we begin to think about changing attitudes, changing thinking, how can we fail? Hmm. That's a real good question. I think you can fail if you don't do the first things, and some of those are what I just talked about. For the church, Chronicles is very clear. If my people, called by my name, would humble themselves and pray. It doesn't say those people, that other group. I'm talking about the church now. We're the ones who have to go through those steps. And then the Lord said, well, then I'll hear from you, and I'll heal your land. And so if we in the church are not willing to go through those steps of humility hearing from God, we, we're going to miss it, and then we're going to come down on the wrong side of history because we're going to be tossed to and throw by every wind of doctrine. So every uh, political wind that comes through, every little solution that is not of God comes through. This doesn't mean that we don't have opinions. This doesn't mean that these things won't be manifested politically or policy-wise because all those things, the moves of God, at the end of the day, how they manifested was a rebuilding, a physical rebuilding. Think about Nehemiah. Uh, these decisions were made a long time before any mortar or brick was even lifted. And so a move of God always results, I believe, in some kind of natural manifestation. One failure that I could see within the church, pulpit exchange, choir exchange, food exchange, you know, a congregation exchange, and that's the end of it. And people ask, why is Sunday the most segregated hour in the country? It's because we have no relationship after church and before church. We have a whole week where we're in separate camps or work, and I, I get it that we are working, and I get it that the lane that you're in, and I get it that you may not work with a white co-worker or a black a man or woman, and and work very often because of the time constraints and things to be productive and whatever, those kind of conversations don't get done. But if we converse and work together in between crisis, then when the crisis comes, I know that Larry has my back or I have your back. And that's the problem is that in between the Sundays, there's no uh, crossing. There's no, even with, I would say, with millennials, you know, how many millennials have friends or even acquaintances that don't look, think, look like them. Granted, there's an explosion of interracial marriage. I mean, my, my son-in-law is white. He's from a German family, farming family in the middle of Pennsylvania. That's been very interesting. And so when I hear about certain groups matter over others, I think of him immediately. I have another good colleague, Ryan Bomberger with the Radiance Foundation. He tackles that straight on and says, all people matter. And that's not a very popular term now. In fact, that'll get you called out. 
possibly shunned, possibly demonstrated against, and maybe even worse. And I get that. And I also get the Black Lives Matter because that's the cause of today, not in a flippant way, but that's that's where the match is, that's where the fire is, that's where the uh, perception and the reality is, even though we know that more white men are killed by cops than black. And if anything, I tell folks, well, isn't that a basis of a coalition right there? We had coalesce about everything else, and we had a white woman that was killed by a Somali cop here a couple of years ago. And so there's a uh, consensus there that there's something wrong in terms of uh, authority and power and how we handle things. And so those are things that I think that we can uh, work on together. And the failure will be of the window is that we don't do the first things first. You know, one of the things that I foresee happening in the near future, because we're beginning to see it now, and that is your silence is complicit to whatever the issue is. So if it's racism, well, if you're silent on that and you're not agreeing with the the trend of the cultural Mm. mindset, Mm. we could actually be targeted by outside groups as racists just because we're silent. Speak Mm -hmm. to that. Well, that's unfortunate. I think right now white America is silent because they are honestly perplexed and shocked, especially the Twin Cities. We think this would never happen here. We're Minnesota nice. You know, like where did this come from? And like I tell people, this tinder's been in the forest for a long time. I mean, I've been living out here for probably about 38 years or so. And when I first got here, my first take on the Twin Cities was before I actually came out here to live. I used to do uh, work for a church back east, and I used to monitor grants. And that's back in the days of those thick RFPs from the government, and you had to go through the uh, two-point type to figure out how you can get some money. And I came out here, and whenever I was going in these travels when I was working there, I always said, take me to the worst part of town. And I came out and went to the north side and to some parts of St. Paul. And living in the Bronx at that time in public housing, I would say, this is the worst part of town? you got to be kidding me. I saw fences and yards, uh, cars that had all four tires on there. I saw parks about every six blocks. And so my paradigm, even as a black New Yorker, was like, this is as bad as it gets out here. And so I, I didn't see past the, the facade. I didn't see past. And those things, I mean, I did not see Rondo and I-94 because I was ignorant about it. I didn't see Plymouth Avenue and the riots back there. I didn't see a lot of things because I was ignorant of it. And so the silence that people have should not always be interpreted as they don't have something to say. They're not thinking about things. What they might say is not valid. We have a lot of instances in our life where we don't say anything. And Proverbs is very true. Uh, Some people might say, well, I'll keep my mouth shut and be thought of as wise. And there's some truth to that, and I think in interpersonal relationships. But when it comes to this wider controversy now, people feel that they are in danger professionally, physically, politically, emotionally, that I become a target if I don't say anything. And it goes past if you see something, say something. I think that folks on both sides need to cut each other some slack. The level of response required gets higher as your prominence or your power gets higher. So like a a Hennepin County commissioner, I would expect him or her to have to say something on this. The average guy on the street probably doesn't have to say anything about it because, you know, who is he or who is she? They don't really matter. But when you get into the levels of accountability or pastors or somebody's prominent, 
has a position of responsibility, you're going to have to have something to say. And that's where we get back to the first works. Am I going to have the mind of Christ about this? Am I going to go with the Webber Wyndham doctrine about this? Or am I going to say, what saith the Lord? Even though you may have to put it in a secular language or a secular way that it can be received. And so I don't call people out. My bread and butter, what I do is about abortion and also the impact of abortion on the black community. And I've gone past people's silence on that. I guess I've gotten to the point now where it might be bad that I've gotten a little complacent about it, kind of, no, resigning to the fact that people are not going to talk about this issue, more one of resignation. And I think because the issue is so hot now and new and people don't know what to say, they might be listening. And it's very hard to listen and talk at the same time. Hopefully that that will be the way people look at it. And then have people weigh in as you share and as you emote. Anger is not always a bad thing, given by God. And so because of this issue, you're going to get a lot of anger. And I tell folks on both sides, you need to be able to weather the storm in order to hear where it's coming from. Now, in your work with Pro-Life Action Ministries, you're dealing with all different races, but as a black man, you're standing there, and what does the black community see you as? I mean, are they probably a little more agitated with you, or where, where does that go? One thing I've found over the years, uh, I'm a licensed pastor, and so when I'm working our platform, what do we call it, it's our free speech platform, we literally look over the fence into the parking lot of the abortion facility in Robbinsdale. We have a chapel right next door. And so we're able to talk to women over the fence. And I say, my name is Brian. I'm a pastor, which is telling the truth. I find when I first started out over the years, that caused people of color their steps to slow. Something about a pastor, Jesus, religion resonated with the black community, especially with African nationals, because at that particular mortuary in Robbinsdale, you have African nationals coming from uh, Brooklyn Center, North Minneapolis, many from Brooklyn Park. That seemed to mean something to them. With whites, it meant absolutely nothing. They just, if they were going in there, their steps were straight and their stride was not broken. Lately, the stride of the blacks going in and the straightness of the line seems to be becoming more in behavior, white, for want of a better word. Religion, position in the community doesn't mean as much as it did before. Now we're also seeing more people that are either self-identifying as Muslim. You can't tell a Muslim by what they look like. Uh, you may make assumptions if somebody comes up with a burqa. More women are coming in with full burqas for abortions, and something that never happened five years ago. So as a black sidewalk counselor, I'm very much aware that even within my own race, there's cultural differences. I have found that talking with black men, I have more time to talk with them. They understand and say, yeah, I get it, Pastor, or I get it, you know, yeah, I, but, they say, but it's her choice. And so they're mouthing a lot of the same rhetoric you hear from feminists. People have to remember that Planned Parenthood has been in our school systems for decades, and they continue to be there. So a lot of what I'm hearing, uh, well, it's her body, her choice. Now, I was growing up in black churches. I never heard that expression. It's her body, it's her choice. Where did you get that from? I went to Pentecostal church for 16 years, black one. You never heard anything about that. And you had women in the community would have children out of, out of wedlock, and they wouldn't be shunned 
or put aside. They were blessed. They were respected. They were folded into the family. And so that kind of a, a thinking, hearing it from other black men, I'm also very aware that I'm lumped in with white right-wing evangelicals from community leaders, not so much the person driving up. They are in a crisis mode. They're thinking about get in, get out, get on with my life. But my, how I'm perceived as a black man, I'm probably the only black sidewalk counselor between here and the West Coast. Really? I'm pretty sure. Wow. I could probably, if we are out there, it would not amount to more than the digits on my two hands that I'm raising right now. We're just not out there. My friend Walter Hoy was arrested years ago in Oakland for doing what I do now and holding the same sign, same sign that's near me. God loves you and your baby. Let us help you. Phone number. He carried that around in Oakland. Uh, the Lord got a hold of him about the abortion issue. I'm just very much compressing his story. And he realized that when black women in Oakland saw a pastor with his collar on, he had little caps that got Jesus. The abortion numbers for that particular abortion facility went down. And I'm sure they picked up the phone to the city fathers and mothers. And you remember Oakland is not exactly Mayberry by any means. And they crafted an ordinance that had everything but his name in it. And he was arrested. I think he was in uh, jail for about four months and got sick in jail, food poisoning, and really it took a toll on his health. And people did not understand, this is Oakland. What do you care about? This white issue, this abortion stuff, this is a white issue. This is a white evangelical issue. Even hear it more now because the, the different parties have lined up in opposition to each other about abortion. It's not about life against a conception. It's about bodily autonomy now. So the argument has even gone beyond science. We acknowledge the science. I was told by Hankstrom Miller, the owner of Whole Women's Abortuary, used to be downtown Minneapolis. They moved to Bloomington. This was at a forum at the Med Students for Life held years ago at the U of M Med School, packed lecture hall. And I asked her, will you acknowledge that you are killing a human being by aborting, doing abortion? She said, oh, yes, I know that. Very matter-of-factly answered, I know that, but the rights of the women supersede the right of the child to live. And so that has been the filter when people drive up or leaders look at me even as a black man, and saying, you know, why are you out here? Why aren't you taking care of the children that are in the hood already? Or why aren't you doing something? I'm always questioned by leaders and other people, pastors by usually, get a job. Or what are you doing to help children now? Are you feeding children now? And we have a blue sheet we hand out to women. We have probably a total of maybe 100 different places to help women, from homeless shelters for pregnant women, to health care, uh, where to direct people for free health care. The findahealthcarecenter.gov is one resource. And so we do care about the child. But I tell people these women and men have passed all those community resources. They've gone past the church, literally going up Broadway or wherever they come from. They've passed the schools. They've passed the free health care. They've passed all this information, all these resources, and they're coming into the parking lot to have their child killed. And that's why I'm there as a human being, and that's why I'm there as a black man, because this is hurting us inordinately. We've lost a third of our population since 1973. I can't think of a better voter suppression 
than cutting your population by a third. You know, Brian, I certainly have appreciated this honest conversation. And uh, we just have to get back to the idea in our society that, and I know as a secular society, this will be tough. But, you know, God is for life. You know, God is for race because he created all of us. Different, yes, but we're still part of one race, the human race. So thank you for coming in and being a part. How do people get a hold of you for, obviously you're not a a race relations person per se, but you do abortion counseling and you have not only do the sidewalk counseling, you and your wife Denise have a post-traumatic ministry. Tell us just how do they get a hold of you? Okay. I wear two hats, like I say, but I'm not double-minded. So I punch the clock. I tent make at Pro-Life Action Ministries. Just go to plam, P-L-A-M, as in man, dot O-R-G, and you can find out all about the ministries that we do. We are probably one of the original or premier sidewalk counseling organizations in the country. Uh, We train, we recruit, uh, we schedule people to do sidewalk counseling in front of the three abortuaries in the Twin Cities, Orlando, Florida, and we have an affiliate up in Duluth. I'm the program director there. You can call us at 651-771-1500. And like I said before, plam.org, P-L-A-M is in man.org. My other hat I wear is my wife and I have a ministry called Rich in Mercy, and we do post-abortion and miscarriage recovery. Very often the same traumas are shared between having an abortion and having a miscarriage. Uh, Denise and I have experienced both. Triple W Rich in Mercy dot O R G Rich in Mercy dot org. And I want people to call us at uh, 763-560-8383. 760-560-8383 for our ministry line. And also the reason why that has become even more imperative now is because the push for what is called medical chemical abortions, of which I call, it sounds stark, it sounds graphic, DIY abortion, where you're given a regimen of pills to take, you go home and abort your child, and you do it by yourself, and your bathroom becomes a mortuary, and you have to live with that. It's even more traumatic than going under anesthesia or having a doctor uh, take your child. Now you are really solely responsible because you have literally taken your child home to abort it in your home. And so we're going to be here for women and men that have gone through that at uh, richandmercy.org. Thank you for joining us today. Every Friday we bring you this podcast with interviews with people who are challenging the status quo of Christianity and challenging the cultural norms of our day. Please help us get the word out by sharing the link to this podcast with your online friends and family. Our website also contains other podcasters who are part of the City Sites network of communicators all sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Our website is citysitesurbanmedia.com. Citysites